The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Previously in part one of Brandy Matthews' story, you heard how Brandy had met and moved in with a man by the name of Kelly Simino, an abusive partner who terrorized Brandy's entire family in order to maintain complete control over her. You also learned how Brandy attempted to put a stop to Kelly's abuse and illegal activity by working with local law enforcement when she suddenly vanished. Join me now as we dig deeper into Brandy's disappearance. You'll hear how the extensive man hours worked on her case, along with the cooperation between several law enforcement agencies, eventually helped bring Brandy's mother the answers she had been desperately searching for. It was January 2009, and an unusually warm day, when a couple and their dog made a startling discovery. While walking beside a creek, their dog suddenly disappeared down under the bridge and began barking. Refusing to come back up the bank, the owners followed after their pet, and what they found appeared to be a human skull. It was under a narrow bridge on Sparks and Miller Road in Eldon, where Charles Farley first saw the skull. It was laying back there, about 10 feet, Charles Farley said, pointing underneath the bridge to KRCG News. Charles told reporters that when he found the skull, it was partially buried, as if it had been there for a while. Part of it was underneath the gravel, he said. The skull had teeth, and next to it was dark hair. Sadly, Brandy wasn't the only possible identity of the remains. There had been several other women who had gone missing over the years in that area, including a 15-year-old named Tammy Sue Rothganger, who went missing 25 years prior. She was living across the road from Elton High School with her mother when she suddenly disappeared. To this day, no one knows where she went or what happened to her. But the Osage Beach detective had his theory on who the remains belonged to. You always hear rumors. They're not always true. You always hear stories. And one of the pieces of information that we had gotten, we tried, but we couldn't verify, we couldn't prove, was that she had been murdered and buried somewhere around a residence in Eldon. We couldn't get enough proof. We couldn't get enough to substantiate it. It was just a, it was just a rumor. Matter of fact, like we couldn't even identify who had started it. So we couldn't even track it back to where it all originated from. But it just so happens that this creek, relatively close to that residence. I mean, relatively. I mean, you know, a mile away. But at this point, they just had a skull. Didn't know who it was. We searched the area, you know, the remains, found some things, but nothing, nothing panned out as far as any human remains. There was debris, you know, clothing, bags, plastic, whatever, maybe. But nothing we could positively identify as associated with this skull. And we didn't even know who it was. The detective reached out to Dina to let her know about the discovery. But news had spread fast. And before he could make the call, she was already on the phone with her son, Colby. Well, in January of 2009... My son called me and he said, Mom, have you heard anything from up here? And I said, no. And he said, they found remains. And he said, but I don't know all the details. And so I was on the phone with my son and then 
the detective started calling me, so I switched over, and he said that it hadn't been official, but they knew that it was Brandy that, that they had found. During the long investigation, Brandy's mom had been patiently waiting for some kind of news about her missing daughter. She relied on her family and God to help her through it all. She also became very close with a few women from an organization called Missouri Missing, a nonprofit that supports families of missing persons across the state. The founder, Marianne Asher Chapman, is still searching for the remains of her own daughter, Angie Arnell, a heartbreaking case we covered of a mom who is still looking for answers. When Dina learned about the remains found by the creek, she had mixed emotions. If it was her daughter, that meant she was gone forever. But it could also mean the end to her painful searching. There was also another sad possibility that it could be one of her new friend's daughters from the Missouri Missing Organization who were also desperately looking for their own missing daughters. With all the uncertainties, it was impossible to know what to hope for. So when Brandy entered Missouri Missing in 2008, when they finally entered her into the computers as a missing person, I became friends with the founder and the co-founder of Missouri Missing, and their daughters was missing also in that same area. Marianne Chapman, her daughter Angie, and then Peggy Florence and her daughter Jasmine was missing. So we always considered Brandy and Jasmine and Angie like heavenly sisters that, you know, they was up there together and watching us run around like crazy trying to figure out what happened. The three was still missing. They all three could have been in that area. And so it's like, you're hoping, but at the same time, you know, you almost hope it ain't because then you feel guilty that your daughter was found. And I talked to both of them shortly after I got the call from the detective. And, you know, it was like, well, you know, it could be Brandy, but it could be Angie and it could be Jasmine, you know, because of the area. The investigators then had to count on familial DNA to identify the remains since they didn't have any of Brandy's DNA on record. We took samples of Brandy's biological mom, Brandy's biological dad, and then we send those in to the lab and they identify the mitochondrial DNA. And if you only get the mitochondrial DNA from your mom, the only place that did it was out of Texas. So they had it on record. They had the mitochondrial DNA, they had it on record. They don't have brandy, keep in mind, because we have her mom and her dads. So we have the skull, we send it up to the university in Columbia. They extract the teeth required to get sample from the teeth in order for comparison for DNA. Because you know, unlike what they tell you, you know, on TV shows, when it comes to bone, you're only going to get DNA from certain parts of the bone after that long a period of time. Obviously, you need morrow. And luckily, teeth is one of the only places you're going to get it from something that old. And what are the chances of somebody finding a skull in a low-water creek in January and it has all of its teeth? God clearly had a hand in it. There's, there's no way anybody would convince me otherwise. The DNA test and Brandy's dental records were enough to determine that the remains found were actually those of the missing young mother. When Dina got final confirmation, the remains were, in fact, those of her daughter, she continued to have mixed feelings. And when they come back and they say, yes, it's Brandy Matthews, then it's like you, you almost feel guilty because you wish it had been Angie or you wish it had been Jasmine. It's bittersweet. During the investigation, Brandy's sister had enlisted the help of a psychic and the detective had been willing to follow any lead that could possibly help to find Dina's daughter. She saw 
about the assistance of a psychic. And I don't know how many times she met with her or talked with her, but what's crazy is we generate over 2,000 man hours on this. We would go out, we'd get a tip. Somebody would smell a dead animal in the field and we'd go out and look out in another county. We'd go out there and there's a deer. So you're running down all these tips and all these leads. You can't ignore any of them. You know, once you open Pandora's box, once you open that can, you've got to follow her. The part that I remember of it, Psychic said that she got an image of a tunnel. Then another time came in, Brandy was by water. You know Missouri is known as the cave state, right? Because there's so many caves. Obviously, the ground is limestone. All this water we got here. So what that did, though, is it actually sent us out. Because, you know, at the time, my sergeant was like, hey, there's an old, old railroad tunnel just up north of the town that's been abandoned since, like, you know, Christ walked the earth or whatever. And so we went up there and found this overgrown railroad tunnel that, you know, was a quarter mile long and searched it, spent an entire day searching this old abandoned railroad tunnel that's underground. You know, things like that. I've lived long enough and seen enough things that I, I pretty well don't discount a lot of things. The, the list seems to grow smaller and smaller the older I get. But, you know, like I said, where, where she was really found, she was found at a low water bridge, you know, next to a creek. You know, so... I was like, well, there's a tunnel and there's a water, I guess. Although Brandy's remains were finally identified, it was still up to the detective to try to piece together how Brandy had been murdered. The forensic anthropologist was able to uncover some other disturbing findings. What happened was he buried her, and then whenever everybody started looking for her, then he went and dug her up and scattered her. What he thought was all over where nobody would ever find anything. They come to the conclusion that he dug her up, and when he went to dig her up, that's when he decapitated her. When Brandy's remains were discovered, Kelly was already in prison on unrelated charges. Eventually, he was released, but Kelly broke his probation and was sent back to prison to serve out the remainder of his time. In the meantime, he still hadn't been immediately charged with Brandy's murder. Although investigators had found Brandy's body, the case was far from a slam dunk. Not only do you gotta gift wrap it, you've got to create the box, you've gotta create the paper, and you gotta make the ribbon, and then you gotta wrap the gifts and the stuff that you made and then you've got to deliver it. It's a process. There's such a huge gap between probable cause and beyond a reasonable doubt. Because you got a probable cause to make an arrest, but you gotta have beyond a reasonable doubt for conviction. Prosecutor relies on whatever you give them. You've got to be able to prove the mechanics of it. The jury wants to know the gritty details. They have to know the mechanics of it. Finally, the police got the break in the case needed to piece enough evidence together to prove Kelly's guilt. Big break came when whenever one of the street time guys called me and told me that one of his people that he worked with on, on things contacted him and told about the confession that was made by made by Kelly. So that was a big break. In Missouri. If someone confesses to murder to another person, what that person heard may be considered as evidence. On December 17, 2008, investigators interviewed a witness in the case concerning Brandy Matthews. This witness reported, during September or October of 2006, Kelly Simino made an unsolicited visit to the witness's residence. During this visit, Kelly Simino was very emotional and told the witness he killed Brandy Matthews by choking her or breaking her neck. Another witness, an associate of Kelly Simino, stated he was called to the residence of Anthony Scott to view the ex parte Kelly Simino had received. This witness stated he went to Anthony Scott's residence and spoke with Kelly Simino there. According to this witness, Kelly Simino stated that if he could kill Brandy and get away with it, she would have done been dead. This new evidence 
in addition to the added media exposure, along with meeting Brandy's mother face-to-face, finally convinced the DA to move forward with charges against Kelly. And once the DA decided to take action, there was no stopping him. When Dina first met with the DA, he told her it was going to be a tough case to prosecute. All they really had was circumstantial evidence. But Brandy's mom insisted that if the case was brought to trial, Kelly would get a life sentence. She knew God would ensure her daughter got justice. As we was going through all this, I told the prosecutor, I said, you know, I will not stand for seven years because there had been a recent case where the guy got seven years. He told me, he said, I can't guarantee you that he'll even get charged. He said, this is all circumstantial. And he said, we have no hard proof. And, you know, I told him, I said, no. I said, I know that if you go forward with it, God will take care of it. I said, they will charge him. It was like once it all got started, it was just like I had a peace in my heart that I knew God was telling me, don't worry about it. You know, he's going to get life. The evidence may have been circumstantial, but Dina was still impressed by what the investigators were able to find after so many years. They couldn't find the grave, but they had enough people and like receipts and things to place him. It's amazing what they came up with because for it to be so long and so many years had passed since, Oh, six. I mean, we're probably talking at least four years. And they was able to come up with receipts where they had stayed at the hotel there in Eldon and that proved that they was together. And a guy came forward and said, you know, I stopped on the bridge and went down under the bridge and ran right smack into him. He said he, you know, scared me to death. And a guy seen Brandy sitting out on the side of the road crying and him down by the car. So it was just, it was heaven sent the things that they came up with. On January 6, 2011, the very day Kelly was supposed to be released from prison, Miller County Prosecutor Matt Howard filed second-degree murder charges and held Kelly Simino on a $500,000 bond. It was almost two years to the day after Brandy's remains had been found. Then, on March 14, 2011, Brandy's mom and representatives from Missouri Missing honored the members of the Osage Beach Police Department who had worked on Brandy's case. While thanking them for their dedication and hard work, Dina presented the investigators with a plaque that read, Your performance is inspiring to the families of the missing and murdered, and your dedication has not gone unnoticed. Brandy's mother said, Everything that you did means the world to me and to Brandy. Each of you went above and beyond in working Brandy's case, and for that, we will forever be thankful for each and every one of you. Shortly after he was charged with Brandy's murder, Kelly filed for a speedy trial under his constitutional rights. And he got his wish. Opening arguments began on Tuesday, October 25th, 2011, after a long day of jury selection. The Osage Beach detective reflected back on the complex week-long trial that involved testimony from 18 witnesses, a forensic anthropologist, a medical examiner, and the inclusion of 43 evidence exhibits. The detective was thoroughly impressed by the prosecution's determination. It was an entire week-long trial. There was a lot of interesting facets to it because they argued a lot of things that were case law. Like, uh, for example, there's a whole lot of case law regarding 
like you, know, you write a document using that document as evidence if you are not available. If you write a written statement and it says X, Y, Z, and it goes to court, when you get to court, the written statement you gave does not stand in court in place of your testimony. Your written statement is hearsay. You still have to get up there and say, you know, and testify. But for Brandy, because she wasn't able to be present for the trial, the prosecutor argued her testimony could come from what she had written in the protection order. Because she was proven dead, she wasn't there, she couldn't testify. So there's case law governing those kind of things, but it was it had to be argued. The prosecutor actually argued that topic for like six hours. It was amazing. It was it was amazing. My hat off to him because he really he didn't give up. On October 31st, 2011, Kelly Simino was convicted of second-degree murder, the day that Brandy would have turned 28 years old, possibly poetic justice. It only took the jury five hours of deliberation to reach their unanimous verdict. Brandy's mom, found it incredibly difficult to sit through the trial, but her faith gave her the strength she needed to face one of the most difficult weeks of her life. It was another God moment for me because the day the jury came back and found him guilty was on Halloween night, the day before Brandy's birthday. And it was just like I could feel presence there after court was over, me and Dennis and my mom was all around back and we was just standing there talking and this was probably like eight or nine o'clock at night before we ever got out of court and all of a sudden there was the most loud and beautiful sound and a church bell going off and I don't even know where they came from. I mean, it sounded like it was right in the parking lot. It was just amazing and, and that was like I said, that was the day before her birthday. Sent cold chills down all of us, and we all just stopped talking and looked at each other. And you know, wow. <laughs> After the jury found Kelly guilty of murdering Brandy, his punishment still needed to be determined during the sentencing stage of his trial. Within 45 minutes, the jury returned with a recommendation of 20 years in prison. The Osage Beach detective and his team were pleased to see the case was finally closed, but the pain the senseless crime had caused on everyone involved would never be forgotten. He reflected on what that moment felt like for him and his team. Oh, man. And I know the right word. Wow, I don't know. That's a good question. Satisfied isn't the right word. That's not right. There's no way you can't be satisfied with somebody else's misery because now not only do you have you know her misery and the pain that you've got, all the misery and the pain that that even you know the suspect has to go through may have done something evil and wrong, but he's someone else's son and. He has a family of his own. So satisfied isn't the right word. I don't know. I don't know. It's good. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I can't really put it into one word, really. One, you don't want to let anybody down. Two, I mean, you, you obviously don't want to fail. Anytime you get a case that you just can't, you can't complete it, you feel like you failed. And you don't leave it at work when you go home. It doesn't stay there. You take it with you every day, everywhere you go. It's every time you, when you go home at night, you lay down at night, think about it, you go out to eat, your family, it's on your mind. You do, you carry it with you. It never goes away. Although the detective from Osage Beach and his team headed the investigation into Brandy's disappearance, he remains humble about his efforts and was very clear that the success of the investigation relied on the collaborative efforts of several law enforcement agencies across multiple states. 
It was the diligent work and commitment of many men and women working together to bring justice for Brandy and her family. There's no way that we could have put this case together, that anybody could have put this case together without the work of all the other agencies and, and the other investigators and the people involved. It was a collective effort. It really was. We had over 2,000 hours on that case. And that was just our agency. That was just NLCB. There's no way to do it yourself. Quite honestly, a network of contacts is a detective's best friend because you've got to have resources. No way you can do it all yourself. When Dina thinks back to what it was like for her to sit in the courtroom for the week of Kelly's trial, let alone be in the same room as him, she's thankful she was able to move from anger to forgiveness. She realized Caleb and her family needed her more than ever and that her family was finally free of Kelly. Instead of wasting any more time on the man who killed her daughter, Dina now spends her time reminiscing about her beautiful daughter who had a wonderful personality. She can still vividly see her in her mind's eye as though she is standing right in front of her. She was probably about 5'8", and she had long, blondish brown hair, and she had a, I always called it a little button nose, and Caleb has her nose. And when she smiled, it was just the biggest, beautiful smile. And she was quiet, and she, she didn't have a lot to say, but whenever she was mad about something, or if she thought you was in the wrong, or she didn't like what you said, she would be heard. She wasn't afraid to speak her mind. Dina stresses that at her core, Brandy was a good person. She lifted up those around her and always made others smile. And once she became a mother, Brandy's life centered on Caleb. He brought Brandy as much joy as she brought to others, and they were inseparable. Brandy's goodness lives on in Caleb, but Dina acknowledges her grandson misses his mother dearly. Her absence has understandably left a tremendous hole in his life that only widens as years pass. On Mother's Day, he asks to put flowers on his mother's grave. And whenever he has a good game, he asks his grandmother, Do you think mom would have been proud of me? Dina asks that Brandy be remembered for all she gave up to ensure Kelly was finally off the streets and not able to harm others. I met some of the girls that worked with Brandy at the Gentleman's Club. Even some came up to me that didn't know Brandy that well, but, but knew this guy. And, you know, they all told me, said, you know, that could have been me. There were so many of them that told me that Brandy gave her life to save other girls. None of these girls are bad girls. They're just trying to make ends meet and trying to do the best they can. I mean, we're all broken. If people could hear these other girls talk and have compassion for them and, and just to realize that, I mean, I know Brandy's story. She thought she could live two worlds. Brandy was determined that she was going to get him put away for drugs, and she accomplished that but she had to give her life to do it. Colby eventually became the father of six sons and also put a focus on making sure his sister's memory lives on. Colby's heart went out to Brandy's son and all the other children who had to deal with the loss of a parent to domestic violence. Through his pain, Colby found a special way to honor his sister. The Citizens Against Domestic Violence held an annual Make the Break Fun Run Walk, which Colby helped turn their 2014 race in honor of Brandy. Colby wanted to expose the dangers of domestic violence and stress how important it is to recognize the signs of abuse. He highlighted how domestic violence can happen anywhere to anyone. 
People often wonder why victims of domestic abuse just don't leave their partners, or in Brandy's case, why they leave and then go back. Kate Hanger from the Virginia Victim Assistance Network is able to speak from experience, having worked with victims of domestic and sexual violence. For six years, she worked with an organization primarily involved with community outreach and prevention education. She also has extensive training in the dynamics of sexual and domestic violence and its effects on victims. For the past 18 months, she's answered a helpline for victims of crime, the majority of whom are survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Kate answers a plaguing question that doesn't have a simple answer. It's a complicated situation, and I think in order to understand why people stay in or return to abusive relationships, you have to take into consideration how those relationships started. Because abuse doesn't happen on the first date, abusive relationships start the same way any other relationship starts. And for a while, it's, you know, all flowers and rainbows. And there are some, you know, hallmarks of, you know, a potentially unhealthy relationship that can be red flags in the beginning. But unfortunately, for a lot of people, they either don't recognize them as red flags or they actually feel like they're positive signs. And part of that is sort of our society's view on like healthy and what's normal. So an example of that would be things moving really fast. So like partner, um, typically the abuser saying, I love you early on, you know, that might seem very flattering or exciting to their target. But what it's doing is creating this sense of trust and attachment before it is appropriate. Another thing is in the same line of moving too fast is moving in together or sharing finances or in some other way, you know, becoming entangled with each other early on before most people might consider it to be a wise choice. And then some other things that some people find flattering, but that are red flags are things like jealousy, you know, wanting to have their partner all to themselves or being upset that another person is checking them out. For that potential victim, it's, oh, they love me so much, they don't want to lose me, whereas really what it's doing is exerting that power and control, that manipulation. The things that start happening early on, they're never a big deal. They're just little things, you know, cause for little concern. But then there's this overwhelming sort of honeymoon period and those concerns just get brushed aside. But what happens is the victim and the abuser become so tangled up with each other early on, and the abuser starts to isolate their victim from friends and family. And that sort of ties into that whole, I just want you for myself. And then also doing some triangulation, as in like, well, your mom doesn't like me. I know that. Or why are you going to go hang out with her? She doesn't think that you and I should be together. And it puts the victim in the position of being in the middle and feeling like their loyalty has to be with their abuser. And so then what happens is soon, you know, you don't have your own place anymore. Maybe you and your best friend are on the outs. Maybe you and your family just aren't as close as you were before. Maybe you share finances or maybe you share children. And reproductive abuse is A really big factor in a lot of violent relationships, reproductive abuse can refer to when a person sabotages their victim's birth control or pressures them to either have a child or not have a child, pressures them to get an abortion. Abusers will use cultural guilt as far as like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're a woman. You're supposed to be a mother. Don't you want to have my children to influence whether or not their partner gets pregnant. And the thing is that, you know, you can leave someone theoretically if you just break up or get a divorce. But if you have a child, you're truly going to have to deal with each other for the rest of your lives. And then there's also the financial implications of having a child and what it can mean as far as a person's ability to pursue their education or career. 
so once that person is trapped or in a position where it would be really hard for them to leave, that's when the abuse starts. And it starts small. Emotional abuse is something that is extraordinarily common. And what we hear from survivors is that the physical abuse, while bad, was in no way as bad as the emotional abuse. The emotional abuse really, truly tears a person down. And the trauma and the manipulation just really affects their ability to process information. They start to blame themselves for what's happening. And my personal opinion is that a lot of that can stem from the language that we use when we're talking to people. Most specifically, I feel like it's language we use when we're talking to girls, young women, saying things like, don't ever let a man hit you. You don't ever let a man abuse you. And the problem there is the word let, because it's not like that person is asking permission. It's not like you're allowing them to do it. They just do it. And then when it happens, you're asking yourself, how could I have let this happen? What did I do to bring this on? And what does this say about me? Because I never thought that I would be one of those people. A lot of victims feel like they won't be believed. And the problem is that abusers almost across the board are popular, charming, and put on this public persona of being such a wonderful partner and doting and affectionate. You know, if they were doing these things out in public, it would be easier for their victims to leave. But when it seems as though they're in a relationship with someone who's wonderful, it can, you know, make it harder for them to leave because they think, well, nobody's going to believe me. And that is something that they get told over and over again. Either nobody's going to believe you or nobody's going to care. And they also fear that no one else is going to want them. And that's what they're told over and over again is you're worthless and no one else would love you. No one else would want to be with you. The isolation thing is big. When friends and family make attempts to help, oftentimes they go about it in a way that can cause the isolation to be worse. So for an example, people try to take the intervention approach of, you know, I I can't hang out with you anymore if you're going to stay with them. Or if they do leave, saying things, well, if you go back, don't think that you can come back here again, or putting some type of ultimatum or pressure on the victim. And all that does is close another door that the victim could have had to escape through. And the question that a lot of people have is, why don't people leave? Well, people do leave. They do. And they leave an average of seven times before they finally can get away. And the problem is that when it's the third or the fourth or the fifth time, the ones who have been helping you, they get burnt out. And that can be anyone from their own friends or family. It can be local law enforcement. It can be, you know, shelter. It can be any of those resources that they're going to for help. Then they feel like, well, I've burned this bridge and I, I can't go back. What a lot of people don't realize is that when a person tries to leave or does leave an abusive relationship, it is the time at which they are most in danger of being killed. And that is why a lot of people stay is because they know what will happen if they try to leave, either that their um, abuser will kill them or that they will do something to hurt their pets or their children. And that does happen. Here in Virginia, you can add pets and livestock to a protective order because I've known victims whose abusers have killed their horses, have abused and killed their dogs. And then certainly we know that the best way to hurt someone is to hurt their children. Our society really makes it difficult for people to leave unless they have financial independence. And one of the techniques that abusers use is financial abuse. They will either take control of the finances or take their victim's money. They might have things set up so that that person does not have a job anymore. You know, maybe it decided that they were going to be a a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad. And so now they don't even have the choice of leaving. And, you know, one of the things in regards to reproductive coercion is if you have a child or children with someone and you want to leave and you want to be able to work, sometimes that just isn't feasible. 
as far as what you can earn versus what it would cost to do childcare. And that's another reason why it is a tool that abusers will use. So why do people go back? Oftentimes, it's because they don't have many choices. They don't have the ability to support themselves. And, you know, when you talk about the socioeconomic factors, it's expensive to live on your own and support yourself. And if you don't have that option and if you don't have, you know, resources either within your community or your family that can help support you, that's where you have to go. Also, abusers are incredibly manipulative. So they'll say all the things that things can get back to the way it was in the beginning. It's not going to happen again. I'm so sorry. You know, I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to go in counseling. I love you so much. Please give me another chance. I can't believe you're going to throw all of this away. And then they fall back into this honeymoon period. And this is something that you see quite often in court when there's been a, you know, like a, a charge of domestic violence by the time that court date comes up. That couple is in that rebound honeymoon period. Everything is roses and rainbows again. And everything's going to be different now. We're having a fresh start. And they'll show up hand in hand, snuggling in the uh, the hearing. And that's one of the things that can really burn out the people in the systems. It can really burn out law enforcement and the prosecutors and the local advocates is... You know, why are we going through all of this trouble trying to help this person when, you know, they've just gone right back and they know that it's going to happen again. But the victim, you know, they're in a position, they they are believing what they've been told. And those promises do get kept for a while, but then that cycle of violence starts over again. Kate also explained other fears victims have about what could happen after they leave their abuser. Just because you leave someone doesn't mean that they can't still destroy your life, whether it's the the fear that they'll kill you or kill someone you love. That never goes away. Also, because you're in a relationship with them and your lives are intertwined, they have the capacity quite often to ruin you financially. And that is unfortunately a factor or ruin your reputation and as I said before, you know, abusers, they're they're charming and they're often popular. And so people will believe what they say. Unfortunately, a lot of women get labeled as being crazy and their community turns against them because it's hard to believe that the person that's been abusing them is capable of that. And I think that also one of the things that makes it so, so hard for people to leave is the shame. And, you know, the shame of knowing that The person who is hurting you is someone you chose and maybe even someone you defended to your friends and family and the shame that you didn't recognize those red flags from early in the relationship and then also the shame that you didn't leave a long time ago. The hardest part about all of this is every time you go back, it makes it harder and harder to leave and As a society, we have to make it easier for people both to live with abuse, because for some people that's the only option, or to leave and be able to truly have a fresh start in their recovery. Until in our society we have a way of punishing abusers that doesn't also punish their victims, these things aren't going to change. You know, when we send someone to jail, if they're the the primary earner in the family, that's punishing the family. And when people realize that if their abuser goes to prison, they're going to end up homeless, there's really not a decision to be made. Shelters are wonderful and it's a good thing that they exist, but it's not an option that a person ever wants to have to choose, especially when you have children. So these things all make it very, very complicated. And when you look at it from the outside, you think, well, gosh, why would anyone choose that? Well, they're not choosing that. They're choosing what they think is an option, what they think is going to be the reality, what they've been promised over and over and over again, and what they're in a position that they just have to believe. And then it just happens over and over again. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, 
More than 10 million women and men are victims of physical violence annually in the United States alone. Another frightening statistic shared by Kate was that victims of domestic violence who've been strangled as a form of physical abuse are 800 times more likely to be murdered. But Brandy, along with the countless other men and women who have been or continue to be abused by their partners today, are far from a statistic. They are someone's daughter or son, someone's sister or brother, someone's mother or father. By telling Brandy's story, we hope to put a face to an unacceptable and shocking statistic and shine a light on a dark and quite often hidden problem. With the help of the Missouri Missing Organization, Brandy's family had a moving memorial for the young mother whose life was ripped away from her and those who loved her immensely. We had a beautiful memorial service for her, and we had one in Missouri and one in Arkansas, and there was tons of people in both places. It was just unreal how many people showed up, and like even the town where Osage Beach and Camden area in Missouri, I mean, the towns, they were so loving. We just received so much care from them all in the police department and the detectives I think had a hard time because one of them told me he said you know it it got really hard because she became my daughter too <laughs> you know Brandy now has a memorial bench by the creek where she was discovered we had it all fixed and my son planted a tree there and it's there by the bridge and there's an angel on a bench and then there's a eternal memory light that was in the ground. The light at Brandy's memorial site shines on, mirroring the light that Brandy brought to the lives of all those around her and the goodness that still lives on in all those who loved her. Despite how her daughter's light was extinguished, her mother Dina, her family and son will continue to let the memory of her shine bright. For Brandy and for all the women who are in the midst of domestic violence and for those who have managed to break free. We would like to thank Brandy's mother, Dina, for taking the time to share Brandy's story with us, along with the detective from Osage Beach, who worked so diligently to try to bring some answers to this case. Thank you also to Kate for providing her insights into domestic and sexual violence. For anyone trapped in an abusive relationship, or for anyone supporting someone, We've included some resources and links in our show notes. Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Texla True Crime. Hey y'all, it's Lisa from Texla True Crime. I've got a brand new podcast that covers homicides, missing people, and well, anything that I want to talk about in Texas and Louisiana. I do tell some jokes and I do try to keep it kind of light, but at the end of the day, we're trying to give voices back to the people who no longer have them and to bring stories that have kind of fallen out of the limelight back into it. I hope you'll join me. You can find me on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Bye y'all. I hope you're hearing from me soon and True Crime Fix. How many of you know the name Linda Goff or Sarah Marslin? I bet you will have heard of their murderers though, Fred West and Harold Shipman. Hi everybody, this is Steve, the host of True Crime Fix, the podcast which gives the story 
whilst giving the victim the loudest voice of them all. So far we've covered cases such as Coletta Ram, Kitty Genovese, Jackie Paul, JC Sawyer and Molly McLaren. I'll be releasing new episodes every other Friday via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and all other available stations. So please come over and subscribe and give my podcast a listen. I really hope that you find these episodes informative. If you would like further information, please follow me on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod or find me on Facebook, True Crime Fix Podcast. And remember, stay safe, look after each other and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E